The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of June 3rd, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Golden State Warriors and the Toronto Raptors, but mostly the Golden State Warriors. As the NBA Finals head west, tied 1-1, Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN will join us for that conversation. Soccer legend Julie Foudy will be here to preview the month-long Women's World Cup in France, which begins later this week. And finally, we'll talk to Ben Lindbergh about his new book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Conformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Josh Levine is the national editor of Slate and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Josh was book touring in California last week, but he's back. Josh Levine is back. Hi, Josh. Hey. How'd it, hey, how'd, hey, Stefan. Hey, go? friends. It was great. There were a lot of hang-up listeners who came up to me at various readings, and I signed some Remember Zelmos in books, Excellent. which was nice. Yeah, if people... Um, buy a book. I'm going to make this offer to podcast listeners. If you buy the book, which you should do, it's great. Um, yeah, yeah, I would agree. It's great. I will send you an autographed book plate that says Remembers on Beatty and my signature and has a stamp of my face on it. You can look on Twitter and see the stamp of my face. Just email us at hangup at slate.com with like proof of purchase of some variety. I will send that off to you. Send your address. Uh, Stefan, you can just ignore those emails, but I will not ignore them. Don't. Um, Over the weekend, the Washington Post gave you a really terrific review. It's the kind of review that you really want to get, I think. Serious, thoughtful, comprehensive. And also, it was filled with words, Josh, (laughs) that are the kind that you want to pull out and put on the cover. I'm going to save your PR staff some time. I, uh, I extracted them for you. Here are the, the plum words and lines. Serious and timely. Brilliant. Gripping. Reads like a detective story. Those are really nice words. And if you want to do the thing they do with the movies, Josh, you could also pull out some other words out of context <laughs> okay. that they used. Provocative, profound, essential, compelling, and sumptuously attired. <laughs> I'm definitely sumptuously attired. That is by far the most accurate thing that's ever been written about me. Thank you for pulling out those words. That's definitely going to be on the paperback cover. Josh Levine, sumptuously attired. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday night in Toronto, the Warriors' Andre Iguodala had a three-pointer with 5.9 seconds to go to seal a 109-104 win over the Raptors and tie the NBA Finals at one game apiece. Game three is back in Oakland on Wednesday. Joining us now to discuss is ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm feeling great. I'm feeling better than many of the Warriors players are feeling. They're Physically, mis- not mentally. Emotionally, Men- they're feeling great. Fair point. Um, Kevin Durant was... Uh, 
missing at the start of the game and throughout he's still out with his calf injury. Clay Thompson had an injured hamstring during the game. Kevon Looney had the dreaded chest injury. Uh, Iguodala hurt his leg at the end of game one, got knocked to the ground by a hard screen in game two. He managed to make it to the finish line. When the Athletics Ethan, Ethan Strauss asked him after the game why he plays hurt, he responded, I like Steph. He's a good dude, good guy to be around. That's really the only reason why I like playing basketball. We probably should not take that at face value, Kevin, as Iguodala is a known troll, and we should not feed the trolls. Um, but I do think we should talk about how the ball found its way to this particular guy. Um, the Warriors had almost blown a huge lead at the end of the game. Iguodala is always the guy that the other team wants to shoot, and it often goes in. Um, this isn't always how the Warriors win, but it's how I think the Warriors like to think that they win. Right. So fundamentally, and I, I can see the eye rolling in, in, in many listeners, but but basketball is a game of probabilities, right? And and as you say, every single defense has to sort of make a choice, particularly at the NBA level, on what they're willing to give up because it's just a mathematical fact that if you put two bodies on one guy, that guy being Steph Curry, they're going to be people who are open. And which guy do you want to leave open? What's so interesting about the Raptors' possession is I kind of – I sort of blanched at the second guessing that went on afterwards about, well, you should have fouled Draymond. You should you should have done X, Y, or Z. Or, or I think they, I think if the I think that particular possession was executed really well by the Raptors. Um, you want to go for a potential steal, and man, they had like two legitimate opportunities to strip the ball away. One, Fran VanVleet actually had his hand on the ball when when Curry was being pressured, and then a few seconds later, Kawhi Leonard came this close to deflecting a pass and going the other way essentially to tie the game most likely. And then on top of that, okay, so you don't get what you want. Um, I think there's a case to possibly foul Draymond Green, who's not a, who's not an exceptional free throw shooter. Um, when, when, when he, when the ball came his way, but you get Andre Godala. And as you said, like I think in Nick nurse, the Toronto Raptors head coach said this in the post game interview, like by and large, if you're going to yield a shot, to the Golden State Warriors, not only Andre Iguodala, but Andre Iguodala with plenty of time left on the shot clock, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, by virtue of firing that ball when he did, uh, he left, had it not gone in, he left the Raptors not corralling the ball and then maybe having 1.5 seconds left, which is not a real long time to, to really draw up and choreograph a, a gorgeous high percentage set, but six seconds left, which is, as you know, in the NBA, an absolute eternity. But it really wasn't the last nine seconds of the game that were determinative here. I mean, Iguodala makes that shot sometimes. Curry was open going to the basket and Sean Livingston, who basically saved the game by getting to the ball before Kawhi Leonard did. Oh, Draymond Green says nobody in the media is going to talk about that, so you can't talk about that. Why? About how Sean Livingston met the ball because people in the media don't understand basketball. I just talked about it. No, but you can't. Oh. It's not allowed. Okay. Strike that. We'll have to... Stricken from the, uh, from we'll, the record. We'll deal yeah. with it in edits. <laughs> In post-production. Um, so Curry's wide open. He goes to Iguodala. Iguodala hits it. But it really, it was everything leading up to that, wasn't it, Kevin? I mean, the the Warriors, and we didn't. you didn't mention that Steph Curry went to the locker room in the second quarter, dehydrated and needed, according to Marcus Thompson in The Athletic, some caffeine-laced gummy bears in order to get <laughs> The caffeine had to be delivered back. in gummy form? Uh, apparently, gummy form was the way to go. Maybe it's just what Steph likes. He is very childlike. He does. He loves popcorn. So all of those injuries, I mean, they had a starting five at 
<laughs> missing at one, you know, in total, Looney, Clay, Curry, Iguodala, and Durant. Iguodala's been hurt. Um, the fact that Toronto could not stop the Warriors from going on an 18-0 run to start the third quarter, relinquished an 11-point lead that they had in the, in the, in the, uh, in the second quarter, and kind of couldn't make a shot in the fourth quarter when they needed to were the determinative factors in this game. I mean, kudos to the Warriors for playing great defense. Yeah, the, the offense, speaking of gummy, I mean, the, the offense of the Raptors got got really gummy and has a tendency to. I mean, this happened to them in the several times in the, in the Sixers series. And, and, and it, look, it's a product of playoff basketball against really intensified defenses, which is just uh, and, and that's always kind of the thing that playoff basketball, particularly in the latter rounds, really impresses me is just how different the competitive instincts of a defense are in the regular season in the playoffs. And there's a reason that all these possessions so often look like just fire drills, triage. Can we get the ball to someone for God's sakes with less than five seconds, the shot clock that is even remotely has a high percentage shot. And, you know, the Raptors have a tendency to bog down a little bit, which wasn't the case in game one as much. Um, they got those kind of beautiful. I, I mean, I, the Raptors, pl- the Raptors are really difficult to beat when they are kind of using their collective intelligence. They have all these high IQ players, and Marcus Saul is is delivering sort of backdoor cuts to Kawhi Leonard from the top of the floor, and they're getting good pick and roll action from you know uh, from Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam, which then delivers on the opposite side of the floor to Leonard after the defense has sort of leveraged itself. And that's kind of where they're good when they're surgical and methodical. I, I think when they get into isolation situations, which is tempting because you have Kawhi Leonard, you have Pascal Siakam, who it, it it's amazing because it's not refined. But man, putting that ball in that guy's hands on a dribble drive is really potent offense at times. And they just didn't get good ball movement last night. The thing that, to, to kind of interconnect the two strands of the conversation we're having here, the thing that's most impressive is the way that the Warriors can maintain that connectedness on defense when they're just mixing and matching dudes, when people are shuffling in and out and in various states of injury um, in the in the second half with you know playing with lineups that they haven't been playing with for the entire playoffs because DeMarcus Cousins was playing big minutes in this game. But I wonder if you saw the same thing that I did, Kevin, a thing that I thought was strange. So Cousins ends up being, you know, one of the key players for the Warriors in this game. He's plus 12 for the game, 11 points and 10 rebounds and just giving them minutes, which they desperately needed. Minutes. But, you know, he got two fouls in the first couple minutes of the game. Cousins is a guy that you can very easily frustrate. I thought that in the second half, when the Warriors are making their run, the Raptors got away from trying to force Cousins to switch and to force him to defend. I thought they could have gotten him into more foul trouble, gotten him frustrated, and just gotten better offense going if they just tried to involve Cousins in every action. This is one of the great debates in NBA coaching right now. And on one side of this debate, you have Steve Kerr and and actually very much Nick Nurse, Mike Butenholzer is particularly an adherent of this. And it's when you're presented with these sort of, we'll call them opportunities or mismatches, hey, uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousin isn't very good at defending the pick and roll. Let's attack him. Do you, A, kind of run your stuff, continue to orchestrate your offense as you have for years and have gotten great success? In the Bucks case, it was like 62 games. In the Warriors case, it's like, you know, four finals appearances. Or do you attack the mismatch and kind of exploit this opportunity? And, and I don't think anybody is a 
sort of an a- absolute purist on one way or the other. But, you know, Nick Nurse is not a guy who likes to play mismatch basketball. It's like, OK, do we just completely get away from everything we're doing just to sort of um, – you know, and you see a lot of teams do this, right? Like when, when, because switching defenses have become so common, you'll see time after time this spring, I've seen big guys try to post up Kyle Lowry. And when you actually dig into the numbers, you realize posting up Kyle Lowry, even if you have 10 inches on him, is a terrible idea. You get terrible offense from this. And, and so it's interesting because he looked, I'm with you, he looked terrible. I mean, I looked at the person I was watching the game with last night and said, I mean, I don't know if he's gonna be able to stay on the floor. Is it also fair to say, Kevin, that that Draymond Green sort of resurgence on defense, sort of limiting Pascal Siakam um, in a way that he obviously didn't do in the first game? Siakam was five of 14 at the rim. Um, They really kept the Raptors out of the paint. He was not as effective by any stretch compared to the first game. Sort of was you're able to compensate for that. Draymond helps you compensate for that on the on the on the defensive end. And then on the offensive end. Steve Kerr played Cousins big minutes, and he played Andrew Bogut big minutes. He went big. Can you explain what the rationale behind that was? Not, not having other players. Well, not available. having other players, but 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 playing the bigger guys at all. Yeah, I mean, the Warriors kind of temp fade a little bit on the glass at times. And even last night, the war, uh, the Raptors got, I, I guess, almost about 30% of their offensive rebounds, which is just, I mean— which is trouble. And, and then secondly, I, I think, and you saw this in Kerr's comments between games, the end of game one and the beginning of game two, which is the transition defense in terms of, they just need to be able to get rebounds. And, um, and, and I, I also think that just cutting off the paint has been a recipe of success for teams that have faced the Raptors, the bucks in the early part of that series. They just, I mean, I, there were nights where you look down and the Raptors had like 10 shots at the rim by the third quarter, which is just not, a formula that works in the NBA. Um, the Sixers really did a good job in keeping that you know, really down to the last possession series um, by just kind of clogging out the rim. I mean, the the Warriors don't have, or sorry, the Raptors don't have conventional kind of. I mean, they do some drive and kick, but they don't have a they don't have that sort of lethal, lethal, lethal penetrator. I mean, Siakam's sort of unconventional. He's really good, I think, along the baseline in the corners. Uh, when he puts the ball on the floor, he's this whirling dervish who can somehow uh, get to the rim. But I, I think that cutting off the warrior, uh, cutting off the Raptors in the paint was clearly going to be an agenda item between one and two. And um, I, I think that's the rationale. And if you can buy 8, 10, 12 minutes with Bogut, who, by the way, a really effective passer at the high post, uh, and you saw some gorgeous high-low sets and and some lobs and, and, and a guy who I think if you can't space like horizontally, at least space the bo- the floor vertically. And, and I think and he had, sort of helps you do. That. He had at least what three or four uh, alley oops too. That exactly. He on yeah. And and there's I mean literally in seven minutes he got them sort of three nifty vintage warrior. Hey, you know, we don't have a lot of floor spacers along the perimeter, but what we can do is move the ball around and find opportunities at the rim and do these sort of high-low things because, you know, because everybody on the floor is essentially a point guard. I mean, that's the thing you forget about the Warriors. Iguodala and Draymond are better passers than like 70% of NBA teams' point guards. Like, they just can move the ball. I think we can stipulate at this point that this is a fairly evenly matched series which is exciting for the nba finals can we not is this is evenly matched i think this is evenly matched so um, just having watched the raptors I, they they are even last night they played really good defense i mean i know they to your point yeah they gave up some assist they gave up a ton of assisted field goals but it wasn't i mean the warriors didn't generate great great offense i mean they had to work for every single shot i mean the raptors are maybe i think 
One of the two best defensive teams the Warriors have faced on their run, the 2015 Memphis Grizzlies, which gave them trouble. They were down 2-1 in that series. 2015 Grizzlies, shout out. (laughs) Warriors were down 2-1 in that series. That's the best defensive team they placed. And I think had Kawhi not gone out in 2017 in the conference finals, that Spurs team. But this, they have not seen a defense like this. They just have not. Portland, Houston, forget it. Like this, they are having to work their asses off to find even reasonably good looks at the basket. And when you look at the sort of the diet of shots last night, they weren't great. They were okay. And they, you know, and they, and they squeaked by. It's interesting that that's the case, given that they've played Lowry and Van Vliet together a bunch of minutes, like two pretty shrimpy guys. And, um, you know, and, and they've basically dedicated Van Vliet to hounding Curry. Van Vliet played like 38 minutes on Sunday. A night. box in one. Can we just talk about the box <laughs> yes. in one for one second? We got to talk about the box in one. This is great. I just love guerrilla warfare. It's just, it's just like, and the nurse is so provisional. So sometimes in his strategies and they really tend to work brilliantly. And, and by the way, I mean, the Warriors got nothing down the stretch other than that yeah. Godal yeah. shot. I mean, that to see a box in one on a guy in an NBA finals game in the fourth quarter is unreal. Yeah, maybe to kind of, yeah, to junk up the game, middle of the game, I, uh, maybe, but like this was kitchen sink basketball. Did you see what Candace Parker tweeted? What no, the, no, I did not. What the eighth grade basketball is going on, LOL. <laughs> so for, the, for those who don't know, the box in one is a zone, four man, four men in a zone and, and one guy playing man to man. Why for. For people who don't understand, including potentially me, he whispers, why is it so unusual for there to be a box and one and then be a- Okay, so to Candace Parker's point, it's a strategy you employ when you're playing the eighth grade team that has that one kid who is going off to AAU and like college and then four scrubs, right, who can't score to save their lives. It is a way that you can dedicate undue attention and allow one your best kind of perimeter defender to devote all of his attention to their score and then – the other four guys just cover the floor. Don't let anything kind of untoward happen. And by and large, there aren't any other shooters on the floor. So if those guys get some looks at the perimeter, you'd love nothing more than Draymond Green to start firing up three-pointers over the matter of Andre Godala, uh, to say nothing of, of just the other guy, you know, whether it's you know Jonas Jarepko or whoever it is. And so you just kind of zone up the floor with the undue attention to that one guy. And again, eighth grade basketball, right? There's one player who can hurt you and everybody else is just on the team. And that is sort of what is unusual. The NBA generally has rosters that are too balanced to possibly devote that kind of attention without sacrificing the rest of the floor. The Spurs, I think, ran a triangle in two at some point. I forget when. I want to say that KG did a box and one on like LeBron at some point in like the 07 or 08, I forget, or 08 or whenever it was. But it's just not a strategy you see um in nba games it's a testament to nurses willingness to experiment but also to the warriors kind of kludgy roster at this point like it's that's obviously only a thing you would do when one of clay or steph is on the floor with a bunch of guys who aren't great shooters well and certainly van vliet was effective against curry i mean curry only had Della like- ish i feel like with <laughs> Annoyingly, Delavadovich. Yeah, I mean, he only had what twenty three points last night. When was the last time the he had below qu- thirty? None in the fourth quarter. None in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Um, since we've been talking a lot about defense, why don't we f- end up with uh, Draymond Green, who did a really fascinating interview with Zach Lowe of ESPN, where Lowe picked out ten plays from the playoffs, and he asked Draymond what he was thinking with each one. Um, uh, and this was a uh, text interview, so we won't be able to hear Draymond. But one of the things that he said that I found was interesting was, 
You're taught to send some guys to their weak hand. One thing I figured out, some guys I like to send to their strong hand because I know exactly what you're going to do. That gives me a better chance. If I try to send you to your weak hand, chances are you're a great player. If I'm worried which hand I'm going to send you to, you've made a living out of still getting to that strong hand. So now I'm guessing what you're going to do as opposed to knowing, okay, I know he's going this way. That's some like real galaxy brain from uh, from Draymond. But uh, he has me kind of convinced a little bit. Um, but in the more macro sense, Kevin, you've talked to a lot of NBA players. Is Draymond unusually cerebral? Or if we talk to any player who's like reasonably good at defense or reasonably knowledgeable, you would get answers like this as long as you get or as long as they're willing to be as honest and forthright as Draymond is. It was very funny. I was talking to Darren Ehrman, former Warriors assistant, who was sort of part of the when the Warriors were this young group of recently drafted guys like Thompson and, and Draymond Green and back member the Jeremy Tyler days. And and so there was a time in 2012-13 where the Warriors were a development shop. It was like, how do we coach these guys, this young core up to become a real team? And I was talking to him the other day and he was just sort of reiterating, he's like, Draymond's a basketball genius. And he's like, what was really interesting is I was in charge of the summer league uh, the play. And so we would, in that summer league is when NBA teams, younger players go to Las Vegas and kind of play in these exhibition games, um, just to kind of get reps, as they say, so just get some experience playing NBA offenses and defenses. He's like, you know, it was funny because what we would do is we would record the games and then the next day we would watch everybody's mistakes. And he's like, Draymond has never made defensive mistakes. It was really strange. And there was a certain point. I mean, he's, he certainly needed refinement. He wanted, you know, he, he wanted to get better. And but he was just like it was very strange to watch the second round pick. And you try and, you know, you're as the video, you're having the video guys pick out the bad rotations or where you you sent the guy to the wrong hand or whatever the error might be. And, you know, Irma was just saying and we, we had this conversation a couple of days ago, just, you know, Draymond's kind of a defensive genius. Like he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. I mean, he makes some sense of commission on offense, you know, creative passes that probably are too creative, but defensively, you know, I, I presented a theory to um, a colleague the other day. They were, you know, we were trying to figure, you know, why are the, why are the Raptors so good? And I said, because basically 75% of defensive possessions fail because of dumbassery, right? You just do something stupid. Like, like the, ultimately it's the mistake and you hear coaches talk like this. And like, if you play mistake-free basketball defensively, it's just, you know, you're, you're, and then these are two teams that just don't make a lot of dumb mistakes and and in my opinion like draymond is just in terms of sensibility in terms of just kind of raw instinct defensively where what needs to happen what is the best outcome playing against world-class players you're not gonna as he says you're not gonna take away everything i I just think he consistently makes really good decisions i want to talk about egadala just for another minute um Ethan Strauss included in uh, his his postgame story this quote from Iguodala about whether he'd get into the Hall of Fame. Here's how it works. One day you're replaced. Then it's some other motherfucker in there. And then there's another motherfucker. And, a, and another after that. Nobody remembers anything. None of it matters. <laughs> he is so delightfully dark. And by the way, he says this with a smile on his face when right. you actually talk to him. That's the great thing about having you talking with Iguodala is, is – and he's presented as a curmudgeon in Ethan's piece beautifully. Um, but he kind of does it with this with this sly smile. Actually uh- – uh, Ethan described it as a wry smile, but <laughs> oh. you, you had it almost exactly right. He says, he said all this with the wry smile of the provocateur. 
He is. He is truly a provocateur. And, and hanging out pregame in a Warriors locker room, like in a regular season game, where there's not too much, too too much of a crowd in there, you just it is it is worth the listen. Um, just Iguodala's cultural uh, NBA and and other observations are are, are wonderful. Kevin Arnovitz writes about basketball for ESPN. He'll be in Oakland for Game 3 on Wednesday. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The Women's World Cup starts on Friday. Host France plays South Korea. The United States begins its title defense a week from Tuesday, June 11th, against Thailand, which lost five World Cup warm-ups by a combined score of 18-3. to Though it did tie Australia last year in qualifying, and it thrashed Indonesia 13-0 in a not-so-friendly. In any case, the Americans should get past the Chabakau, which is the the Thai team's nickname. Then they should also get past Chile and Sweden in the rest of the group and USA, USA. They should get past everyone else. But shoulds don't hand out championship trophies and France, England, Germany, Japan, Australia, the Netherlands, and Canada certainly have a shot to win this thing. Julie Foudy was on US teams that won it twice in 1991 and 1999. She'll be in France covering the tournament for ESPN. She also hosts a podcast for the network in which she talks with other remarkable women athletes. It's called Laughter Permitted. Hey, Julie, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Chaba Cow. I did not know that one. You can use that. Feel free to use that when you're you're in France. I (laughs) I was like, wait, who's that again? Chaba Cow. (laughs) All right. With the U.S. team, Julie, the past is always present. It is the 20th anniversary of 1999, so we'll be seeing a lot of Brandy Chastain's penalty kick against China. (laughs) ESPN's 30 for 30 podcasts did an episode about the aftermath of that and the collapse of the first women's pro league. Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated did a terrific feature and podcast about how the 1991 team which started a uh, 20-year-old college kid in the midfield. I don't know if you remember who that was. Um, (laughs) It was the first serious women's side. There's a sense of reverence in the history of what you and your teammates accomplished. Do you think that weighs on current players at this point? Oh, no. 
No, I mean, I think they um, are pumped to honor us, but I don't think it weighs on them anymore. And especially, I would say before the last World Cup, it definitely was weighing on them because it had been um, so long since they had won. Had they not won in 2015, it would have put them at the 20-year mark of not winning and having to win in this World Cup. So I think that um, that obviously helped. But no, I think they're they're writing their own story as they should. I was maybe expecting a little bit more turnover after the last World Cup. Um, there are a dozen players from the World Cup winners, and there are 11 players in their 30s. Were you expecting the roster to get a, a little bit more uh, changed up, Julie? Yes, I was as well. And especially because one of you know the main charges that Jill Ellis always talked about was uh, bringing in different younger players that added a creative element, although she has done that um, with, you know, players like Rose Lavelle and Mallory Pugh and Lindsay Horan, just to name three going to their first world cups. But yes, I, I thought, especially as you get to that last roster selection week or two, and you're thinking eh, she could go a couple different ways and maybe she'll, try with a younger kid and because it's, it's literally not for a lack of experimentation, which she did a ton of in 17, 2017. So, but I think it's easy that you go with what, you know, and you want that experience when it comes to big world cup tournaments. So I also get that. Right. And the one big name that she brought back was Allie Krieger, a defender who was kind of out of favor with the national team for a while. It felt to me like there was a little bit of, Hey, our defense has been, problematic and having an older head back there Mm -hmm. will be helpful at some point in this tournament. Absolutely. And there's comfort in that as well with this, with the team, with the coaching staff, she's played in two world cups. She was playing well. I mean, the one question mark I have is shouldn't you bring her in a little bit earlier though than that? If you are having question marks about your back line, (laughs) give her, give her a couple months before she's heading over to the world cup. But you know, Krieger, to her credit, always stayed ready, you know, in, in that two year cycle of darkness. Uh, and she literally would say would call it that because she just she had no communication with the national team. Uh, she would say, I'm, I'm ready. I'm here. I'm going to I'm going to stay at it. And who knows, maybe my chance comes. So give her credit for that. So, you know, regardless of whether they'd won in 2015, there's something inherent in the structure of this sport, that there's going to be an extraordinary amount of anxiety and stress and and pressure just because of how huge this tournament is. It's the World Cup and and the Olympics. Um, And so curious, given your experience, is that something that is really player by player in terms of how um, you guys think about that and approach it? Or is there like a team-wide feeling that's that's not just retroactive? Like, can going into 91 or 95 or 99 or whatever, is there kind of a different team-wide feeling about the pressure that you can feel? I do think every player has their anxiety level set at different, (laughs) you know, (laughs) thermometers and uh, at different temperatures for sure. But where was your set? um, My anxiety in the 
initial years, I can't even remember back to 91, but um, I, I, I think it was, I've never been a high anxiety player. I'm very loose. And if I started overthinking things, I would not do well. So uh, staying unfocused and loose was my trick to that. <laughs> and, and it worked. Um, so I was the one dancing in the, you know, the locker room the whole time. Uh, but everyone's approach to these tournaments is very different, but we found the most successful teams looking back over the four world cups I played in were the ones that understood the value of embracing that pressure and wrapping their arms around it. And that's definitely a team thing because that's something that's conscious. It's something the leadership sets. You need those players. I was just talking to crystal Dunn before this world cup saying that's you sister, you be that player in the locker room because she's dancing and she's having fun. And there's a joy to what you're doing that diffuses the pressure for everyone else. So she kind of unscrews that pressure cap uh, and lets it out. Uh, And so that's a very conscious thing. One of the things that this team faces is not just expectations for repeating and continuing the legacy that you and your teammates established, but there are now these sort of bigger external forces, I think. And, you know, whereas in 91 and 99 and in the early two in the 2000s, a lot of it was about how this team represented being role models for girls, inclusivity in sports, mm. um, showing how powerful women can succeed and dominate on a world stage. And now the conversation is a little different because it's a little more serious. It's about pay discrimination. It's about Mm -hmm. equality in the workplace. Um, And this team is carrying into the World Cup a lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation um, demanding better, um, better, more equitable pay and more equitable treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that harder to shut out for them? And it's because it's, it's as important as winning the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we had this debate with some internally with some of the 99ers of what would we have done three months before a World Cup? Would we have filed this lawsuit? And I was talking to our old attorney, John Langle, who represented us for so many years and I said, I, I think I, I might have made the argument as a player that it's too much of a distraction because we lived through a contract distraction during the 95 World Cup and we swore to ourselves we would never let that happen again. We ended up losing that World Cup uh, in the semifinals to damn Norway. Um, and so I, I was incredibly impressed at the courage to launch this three months before the world cup. But again, it's, it's very different. These players having grown up under the spotlight and the media circus and, you know, to Megan Rapinoe's point, when you ask her, Hey, is this going to be a distraction for you guys? She says, everything's always a distraction for this team. Right. Um, and we've gotten really good at dealing with the circus. I mean, there's always something going on with this group. So, I think they recognize like we have this moment, we've got to capitalize on it or else we're going to lose this moment. And we're also going to compartmentalize because we're not going to have to deal with that lawsuit. We're going to file it, but we're not, they're not dealing with it 
before World Cup or during World Cup. Um, they're obviously talking about it, but they would talk about that anyways, I think, in, uh, in a larger sense. So because this is what this team wants to be known for, which I love as well, that it's bigger than soccer. You mentioned Norway. So uh, we should talk about Ada Hegerberg. She won the first ever Ballon d'Or for, for women, the Player of the Year Award. She is refusing to play for her mm-hmm. country. Norway is in the World Cup. Um, and she is in the prime of her career. She's 23 years old. Um, and what she has professed is that um, women's soccer in Norway isn't treated, the, the mm-hmm. women aren't treated fairly and with equality. Um, there has been an agreement reached where there's now equal pay in Norway for men and women, but she wasn't satisfied with that, apparently. Um, I'm curious for your thoughts uh, on Hegerberg, because this is, uh, she's passing up an enormous opportunity mm-hmm. to, to play here. Um, and so yeah. I'm, I'm just curious what, if, if there's more to it than what we've heard or, or what you think. Yeah, I, we tried to do a feature on her. And the, and the stories I've, I've heard or um, I've read you know, they never go into great detail about what it is that she's upset about. And she, what I was told is she's not willing to talk about that, which I find to be interesting, right? If you're going to go to such measures to hold out on a World Cup, and which, you know, again, I'll use the word courageous, um, and and give up the pinnacle event of your career, um, why? I want to know why, right? And I want to hear about it and be able to you know, speak about it. And so I don't quite understand that component of it. And for us, when we always had these battles for equal pay or um, equitable pay back in our day, uh, or just, you know, more than $10 a day per diem, that would be nice. Uh, There was always uh, the element that we are in this together, meaning the team, and they can't cut all of us. So for us to get anything done, we have to come about it as a group, right? And stay unified. And, okay, you don't want to make these changes, then we're not going to the Olympics as a group. And neither are the under-21s or the under-19s because we've had them on a conference call with us and they're on our side, similar to what we saw with USA Hockey, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that she hasn't – and I I honestly don't know if she has tried and they just did not – go with her, how it's not done as a collective group for Norway, and especially given that they signed that new contract. So I find it perplexing. Um, I find it courageous in that she is willing to give all that up to make a point, but I just wish she'd be a little bit more forthcoming about what it is that she's fighting right? and, the, and the, why the whole team is not on board with her. And what seems odd to me also is that what better platform do you have than the World Cup to air these grievances? Um, and right. the U.S., players are finding a way to do that. Megan Rapinoe not only has been outspoken about the internal discrimination lawsuit, but she's also talked about, she's been asked about FIFA, which has scheduled um, other men's tournament finals on the same day as the women's final. Two two, Two other. The South American and the the Gold Cup here in the United States. It's outrageous. Um, And there's a willingness to to point out these inequities. You know, the 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 champion of the the World Cup this summer is going to get four million dollars, which is twice as much as what the U.S. got in 2015. But France got 38 million dollars for winning the men's World Cup, and clearly there are revenue differences here, and there are sort of global audiences audience differences here. 
But the only way to pressure for these kinds of things to change is to be outspoken and be there on the platform. And I think that's yeah. where the U.S. players, maybe because of the experience of their foremothers, you guys, um, <laughs> and the, 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 the way that the media operates in the United States, they have that platform. And Yeah, but the, the one thing that is just so striking whenever you hear about um, whether it's Lionel Messi or, or somebody else, um, you know, complaining about their federation is like you have nowhere else to go like it's not like Hegerberg can play for sure. for another country you're just like stuck um mm-hmm. you know for good or for ill with your federation and so um you know it always the thing that's so fascinating here is like you know Julie Messi will always quit the Argentina team like immediately after the world cup right. because of <laughs> right. some dissatisfaction um right. but but he'll play he'll come back right it's, yeah uh, well, and that's the thing why you I just feel you're so much more powerful and productive and able to actually change cultures and mindsets if you do it from a group standpoint, right? Where you have to say, okay, then we're all not going in. I mean, imagine if Norway, all of them together had said things or things need to change. Because of course, yeah, Hegerberg out is a huge loss for for Norway, but they're still going to the World Cup. So really, what are you changing? Um, except for the fact that there's a little bit of discussion about it. But uh, I just I just always believe you're stronger collectively when you get that done together. Um, and that's been really the only thing that's moved a lot of these federations along is the women together coming together saying this isn't good enough. All right, let's talk about the U.S. on the field for a moment. So, you know, the attacking depth um you know the the players up front is just incredible with rapino alex morgan tobin heath mallory Pugh. we could go we could go on and on so that that's an obvious strength for the team is the weakness then the the back line or is that too simplistic well it's interesting in that they the u.s won the world cup I would argue on the backs of their back line and hope solo at the last world cup, like they, they clearly kept them in it. Right. And they struggled offensively for the first whole part of that tournament. And then they finally get it going in the final Garley Lloyd scoring her hat trick. But that was one in large part by their great defense. And this time around, I think, if they're going to win it, it's going to be won by their offense. So that front three that you mentioned, and then also I think they'll get a lot of contribution from um, the three on the bench that also come in. I mean, they were switching that front line as like a hockey line almost um, in the last send-off games where Carly, Mal Pugh, and Kristen Press were your three coming in off the bench. You know, those three would probably start on most national teams. So you have that incredible depth. You have a good midfield behind them that also is going to score some goals. Um, we saw Sam Mewis scoring recently, Rose Lavelle. We know Horan I and mean, all of them. So Ertz. So that front six and then the depth of that front six is really good. Um, so I would say, yes, they're going to, it's going to be flipped this year is they're going to have to score a lot more goals. We should probably mention some of the other teams that could actually beat the United States. And, you know, I mentioned France, um, 
France has to be a favorite. Germany is always strong. Japan has continued to be a, a decent side. But there are more teams that have gotten better, more countries that we have not been used to seeing that you didn't play very much or worry about when you did play them. Countries like England, which made the semifinals four years ago, the Netherlands, which won the European Championship. There is, again, more depth here, and that has to be problematic for not just the United States, but all of the established powers. Yeah, it's a great problem to have. And, it, I, you know, for years I've been like, where are these countries? Why aren't they developing? We thought after 99 and the success of that tournament that federations would go, ah, if I just invest a little bit in my women's program, I could actually have a huge return and I can tap into this untapped market. Well, no, it takes longer to change mindsets than I thought. Um, but yes, this is the first time actually in, I've ever been able to count on more than one hand, potential winners for a Women's World Cup. So I forget who you guys said, but I, I'd, I'd, I'd add Australia to that mix. Did you say them yet? I did. Okay. Um, I would add Japan to that mix. Did you say them? I'm good. Yeah, keep going. Okay. You're making France. me look really good. France, yes. <laughs> I'm, or I'm just a bad listener. England. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, you mentioned the Netherlands winning. Um also, Spain, interestingly enough, the U.S. played Spain. them. I'm not sure they're quite at the level of winning. They're like one finisher away from being able to win a World Cup, I think. But the U.S. played them in Spain in January. We called that game in Spain. And Ian Dark and I looked at each other after 30 minutes, and we were like, oh, oh my God. The U.S. hadn't touched the ball for the first 30 minutes. They just, you know, in their typically Spanish, beautiful way, pass the ball. But what we then learned after 90 minutes is like, okay, you can do that for uh, a whole game, but you also have to have someone on the other end that's going to put the ball away. So, um, but they're a really good team. They've made tremendous strides in the last five years. Right. And if you look at the, the, the full roster, and this is a bigger World Cup, um, some traditional powers that have been because of their sort of cultural sexism over the years, Argentina, Spain, Italy, their women's teams are now in this tournament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sadly, I mean, speaking of that sexism, I mean, look at Brazil. You have the six-time FIFA World Player of the Year in Marta. And when we played them in 2004 in the final of the Olympics, I thought, thank God I'm retiring because Brazil, now that they're getting a little more support, is going to take off. Like, we are not going to be able to stay with them. We we should, should not have won that Olympics, that final. Um, and... Then they return from playing in the gold medal match against us and not winning and go back to their old ways of just not supporting that program. And so they've taken a big dive, you know, the, the Brazilian team and Marta will sadly, I think, finish her career without ever having won a World Cup or an Olympics, which is a shame. And the U.S. could play France in the quarters. Is that, is that how we think it might shape They could up? play in the round of 16 if one of them finishes second in their group. Yeah. So, and that that would be a huge game, and I think that it's a testament to yeah. to the depth here to have two yeah. of the favorites play even before the semis. Yeah, I think if so, if France wins their Group A, which I I would say they 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 should, and the U.S. wins its Group F, which they should, and then they win their round of sixteen. The U.S. actually, if they win their group, would probably play a Spain or Canada in that round of sixteen. Um, and or no, sorry, Spain or China, probably in that round of 16. And then they would meet in Paris in the quarterfinals, which would be a huge game. I imagine that 
And that, and I, I'll tell you though, I think the U.S. has the edge on that, even though France is playing at home, because the U.S. lost to France. They got butchered by France is probably a more apt word. Uh, in January on that same Spain trip, they played France first and lost three to one. And it really could have been five to one France in that um, game. And those losses like that, I mean, the good news to that is those sit in the U.S. players' minds and they burn and you want another chance at them. And I talked to many players uh, just before they left. We were calling that Mexico game, and they were like, oh, my God, we want France again. We want them in that quarterfinal. Alexi Lalas says early exit for the U.S. I don't think so. I bet you don't either. I saw that, that. yeah. Yeah. Well, he thinks that France quarterfinal match would be the the undoing of U.S., but I actually like that they lost in January. When they lost in January, I was like, good, let that one sit. And fester, because it does. Julie Foudy was on the World Cup championship teams in 1991 and 1999. She works for ESPN now. She hosts a podcast called Laughter Permitted. She's very busy. She's going to France. (laughs) Have fun over there, Julie. Thanks. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for doing this, you guys. Before we get to our conversation with Ben Lindbergh about his new book, The MVP Machine, I wanted to let you know that our conversation with Ben Lindbergh about his new book, The MVP Machine, it's really good. So we wanted to talk to him more about the book, which we will do in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. I also wanted to let you know about Slate Day. It is going to be an action-packed day of live podcasts and fun experiences. It's Saturday, June the 8th in New York City. It's on the High Line, which is a great place uh, to be on a lovely spring day. You can see The Waves, an outward mashup show featuring a performance from Ms. Cracker. Play pop culture trivia with Slate's culture team. Bring your kids to the mom and dad are fighting play date. See what next. Interview Wyatt Sinek and much more. For tickets and more information, visit slate.com slash live. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Max Muncy, Nathan Ivaldi, Rich Hill, J.D. Martinez, Justin Turner, and Chris Taylor were all stars in last year's World Series. And as Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sochik note in their new book, The MVP Machine, All of them were fringy major leaguers until making dramatic changes to how they approached the game. These guys and a bunch more are part of baseball's player development revolution, which I just read in that very same book, is overturning old beliefs about the immutability of talent. Joining us now to discuss is Ben Lindbergh, who's one of the co-authors of The MVP Machine, which is out this week, this very week in the subtitle of which is How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, it's true. There are old beliefs out there. That's why you have to buy the book. You might have some (laughs) old beliefs that have to be overturned. 
So your book is about new nonconformists. Let's start with the old nonconformists. Uh, Moneyball was published in 2003. It covered the 2001 season of the Oakland A's. General manager Billy Bean essentially said that plate discipline couldn't be taught, which is why the A's had to go out and acquire players who had it. Um, we're going to want to expand beyond plate discipline, obviously, in this conversation. But is it fair to say that Bean was wrong? Well, I think so to a certain extent, and partly because the technology that is helping players improve in plate discipline and in other respects these days was not available back then. So what we do in the book is draw a distinction, I think, between what is really dominating baseball today and what's separating the best teams from the less good teams and what was working in the Moneyball era. Because after Moneyball, there was 15 years. There's a lot of books in the Moneyball mold, and Travis and I have both written one that are kind of like Moneyball in that they're about one team and how one team was doing something smart to win. But the big difference today and in this book is that this is about creating or enhancing talent, whereas Moneyball and many of the books of that ilk were about finding talent that was already good. So Billy Bean would go and trade or, or sign guys who could walk, and he recognized that walking was good and on-base percentage was good, but he didn't teach anyone to walk. And it actually says in the book that he didn't have much success teaching his homegrown players to do what the players he had imported could do. So this book and this movement is all about, well, how do you teach the guys to walk or teach them to throw this pitch or teach them to use that swing? And teams are really getting good these days at making players better as opposed to being better at going out and finding guys who are just undervalued but already have that existing performance. And of course, the way to teach the players to do these things is not just through teaching them by talking to them or sort of standing there and swinging a bat a different way or throwing a pitch a different way, but it's using technology. And, and, and you know, this gets some coverage, but the, the thing that you do so well is you're with the players as they are doing this stuff, as they are using these new um, new techniques and new technologies and new some in some cases just very jerry rigged sort of you know cameras and recording devices and and equipment. Can you tell us like one or two stories about players that have essentially gotten better, changed their games, whether it was the guys Josh mentioned or others, because of new technology that has allowed them to say oh, I see what I am doing now, and thank you for helping me change. Yeah, I mean, Trevor Bauer is sort of the poster boy of this movement, very polarizing poster boy and imperfect in some ways, but he's been a pioneer and a trailblazer in bringing all of this technology to bear to make himself better. And he went from someone who was not very naturally talented, at least according to him, to someone who was, you know, a close contender for the Cy Young last year until he had sort of a fluke injury late in the season. And he has used these high-speed cameras that have come along and, and really infiltrated baseball in the past few years that enable you to see the ball coming out of your fingers in a way that you just couldn't before. And that has actually schooled some pitchers on what they were doing. So they didn't even recognize how the ball was coming out of their fingers because they couldn't see it. And in some cases, they see this footage and they think, wow, I didn't even know I was doing that. And once you know you're doing it, then you can change it if you need to change it. So Bauer will use these high-speed cameras called Edgertronics. He'll use this Rapsodo device, which measures the spin and the spin axis of the ball. So you can see exactly how it's moving and why it's moving that way. And so a, a bullpen session for Bauer will be having all of these tools monitoring him, looking after every pitch to see, okay, that one moved a little bit more like I wanted it to move. 
here's why, here's how I was holding it, and that's why it came out of my fingers this way. And so you can really design a pitch in a a very concerted way that you couldn't before. And so heading into last season, which was kind of his breakout year, he just developed this new slider essentially from scratch. And the key was that he sort of stole it from Marcus Stroman, the the Blue Jays pitcher. So he kind of had it working in spring training. Then he didn't quite have it working at the start of the season. And so the Indians, his team played the Blue Jays, Stroman's team. And there was an edutronic camera behind home plate that was monitoring Stroman and looking at the slider coming out of his hands because his slider behaved the way Bauer wanted his slider to behave. And so he was able to pick up something that Stroman was doing and add it to his own repertoire. And then suddenly the slider behaved the way he wanted it to, which is kind of a cool idea because if someone out there has a really great pitch, it's not just magic. It's not some innate thing that he does that no one else can replicate in many cases. You just have to see what he's doing and you can kind of pick it up for yourself. So the potential, the possibilities are almost limitless here. So Bauer, you know, goes to this facility that's like in the middle of nowhere in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of low-slung garages in this book. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Why are are the kind of centers of innovation that you're describing just these like totally random private operations rather than this stuff being centered um, among the major league teams? Yeah, so I hope that's another thing that sets this story apart is that a lot of the Moneyball books and stories are kind of top-down innovation stories where it's the the GM who makes some insight and then is able to apply it throughout the organization and everything just falls into place. Whereas in this book, a lot of the innovators, a lot of the people who came up with these ideas were independent instructors, people outside of baseball, players who were kind of on the fringes and went looking for something that would make them better. And so you get all of these facilities like the Texas Baseball Ranch that you're alluding to, like Driveline Baseball, like Doug Latta, this hitting coach we talk about who just had sort of a lot in an industrial park where he turned some players into superstars who'd been scrubs before. I think there was a lot of just institutional resistance to new thinking in baseball, in coaching. This is kind of the coaching equivalent of what Moneyball did for front offices. And to some extent, it was sort of inevitable once you had people looking at objective information to sign players, to trade for players. I think it eventually trickled down to, okay, how are we actually teaching players these things? And baseball, organized baseball, if you wanted to be a coach, you had to have been a former player, often a high level or former major league player. And so you would just teach people what you had been taught and these traditions would be passed down from generation to generation. And there wasn't really any room for anyone else to break into things. So it had to happen in these outside facilities, these sort of modest, unassuming surroundings where people were willing to reexamine some of these ideas that people in baseball had believed forever and actually tried to back them up with technology and justify them or substitute something new if they didn't make sense. It's also about the way that players themselves are thinking differently about the game and their own games. How much of it is them seeing or hearing about other players whose careers have been reshaped because of their being open-minded and accepting new technology or hearing about some guru or some dude? And how much of it is that they're in their 20s and they are fully accepting of the notion that there are ways to make me better because I know this from being around technology all of my life? 
Yeah, I think it's both of those things. And I think that's really exciting because in the past, there's been this stereotype of players are resistant to old ideas. And, right. You know, going back to fire Joe Morgan and you have Joe Morgan just denigrating all of the new ideas and players are dismissing this and you guys are stat heads and you didn't play the game. And what do you know about baseball? And now we're seeing players be a really active part of this movement and they're embracing all of these ideas in part because they've seen some of the stories. So they've seen Bauer, they've seen Rich Hill and J.D. Martinez and Justin Turner, these guys who kind of reinvented themselves and came out of nowhere and also had big paydays after that that they never could have imagined. And players see that and they think, what are those guys doing that I should be doing? So that's part of it. And it's also just a, a younger generation of players who are coming up in this atmosphere where everyone is a little more receptive to stats and technology. And a lot of this advanced player development that we write about starts way before the big leagues. It starts in the minors. It starts in college. Even in high school, in some cases, schools are getting this tracking technology that you can then use to enhance players. And players are really a big part of that. They are often seeking out these answers. They're seeking out information. We have stories in the book about players who are in organizations that were kind of late adopters to all this stuff. And they just went out and tried to find this information on their own. You know, they worked with a, a writer who was into this stuff or they just booked themselves a spot at one of these facilities. They want to know. There's a huge incentive for players to um, tweak their their games in, in baseball, financial incentive, because so we've talked about many times on this program, the economic system of the game um, kind of extracts a huge amount of value for players um, when they are not able to monetize right. their own value. Um, but in this case, a lot of the guys that I mentioned in my intro, like if you think about J.D. Martinez, this was somebody who was almost out of baseball and then ends up by virtue of you know transforming himself into a power hitter right around the time when he's hitting free agency is able to cash in huge. Um, and if, as a player, you can figure out a way to um, develop into a star at the moment in which you can cash in, that is like a life-changing opportunity for you. And so you would be a fool not to try to do whatever it is that you can, especially if it's legal. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing Andy McKay, the player development director for the Mariners, told us is, you know, in the 80s or 90s, it was steroids. And now it's this technology and information. It is not actually banned by baseball, but it can make you better in the same ways. And yeah, you're right. I mean, some guys have gotten much wealthier than they ever could have imagined because they have made this type of change. Even Rich Hill with the Red Sox, who kind of came out of nowhere in 2015 and was doing some things differently that had been recommended to him. I think he made as much in one one-year contract as he had to his career in his whole career to that point and he was like 35 by then. So, it really can pay off for certain players. On the other hand, there are some unintended consequences of this movement and of the new potential to improve players because you have a, a youth movement in baseball and a lot of the 
production in the sport is concentrated among these young players who are coming up now, having been steeped in all of these concepts and all of these techniques. And so you're seeing these young players producing a ton. And of course, the young players in baseball do not make much money. They're making the league minimum in many cases. And so this goes back to Branch Rickey, who's an important figure in the book, too. He was a, a player development trailblazer, and he was notorious for not paying for players because he didn't have to. He had a farm system. He developed players. And when you're developing your own players internally, then you don't necessarily need to go out and pay a premium for established players. And that's sort of what we've seen in the past two or three winters in baseball. And I've talked to you about that on the show before. Teams are not going out and paying a price for the 30-year-old two-win player because they figure, we'll just promote this prospect who can be just as productive. Or we'll just go take this guy off the scrap heap who doesn't have the resume and won't cost us as much. And we can change this or that about him and he can give us the same sort of production. So that's one of the things that's coming out of this movement that is maybe not ideal for the sport. Well, Branch Rickey also had something called the reserve clause, which helped him to not pay players. But when you start talking about the structural system that remains in place, all of that is a – it is a legacy of the way baseball operated for 100 years with firm player – with firm owner control over players. And the evolution that is still not complete is getting to the point where these young players that now can be – enhanced or created or improved through technology and observation, more, you know, more, more precise observation of mechanics and behavior, that they are more effective. So something's got to give here. Right. Um, you yeah. also point out another consequence of these trends is that it's changing the way that front offices operate. You have a whole chapter about the Astros. Um, and the way that they sort of completely have overhauled their organization at one point, they fired the bulk of their scouting staff. Jeff Lunau, their general manager, has been portrayed as a as a sort of uh, a, a very rigid figure, domineering in in changing. That's created some resentment within the office. How have the Astros sort of emblematic of the struggle between trying to implement everything at once and risk? You know, what do they risk there? What what are the what's the downside problems? Yeah, so the Astros really made this realization first, I think, before most of the other teams. They used to have these draft analytics that would help them pick players much more efficiently than other teams did. And then they realized, you know, around 2013 or so that those methods weren't working so well anymore because other teams had caught up and were doing the same thing. So they made the realization, okay, we have to pivot to player development because that's the area of the game that hasn't been overhauled yet. We can really steal a march on everyone else there. And they did, and they integrated technology in a a much more focused and omnipresent way than all the other organizations have. You know, we talked about the high-speed cameras. The Astros had 75 of them in their organization last year before some teams had any. And so they've done that. They've turned over their entire coaching staff in, in the minor leagues. You know, somewhat ruthlessly, if you weren't willing to get on board with their program, they would get rid of you and find someone who could. So a lot of people lost their jobs, on the other hand. A lot of people gained jobs because they dramatically expanded the player development staff, as a lot of teams around baseball have. But you mentioned the scouts. The Astros just don't have pro scouts anymore. They don't scout 
players at the major league level or even in the minors because they have all this video, they have all this technology, and they can use that, they think, to get just as good a reading on a player as they could have having humans go around and see these players in person. So they have essentially unified scouting and player development, which used to be two separate spheres inside a baseball front office. Now with the Astros, it's just part of the conversation. Do we want to acquire this guy? Well, what can we do to develop him? It's just the same kind of conversation. And of course, that has led to a lot of bitterness and blowback. And the downside in a baseball sense, other than maybe people wanting to leave your organization or not work for you because of that, is that maybe you will miss some players who just, for whatever reason, don't stand out in the numbers. They don't look great according to the technology. And maybe a scout would see something about that player and his grit or his mentality or something that would lead you to believe that he could be successful one day, even though he currently doesn't profile as a good player. And the Astros, I think, acknowledge that they may just miss some players. Ben Lindbergh is the co-author of The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. It's out on Tuesday. Buy it. Thank you, Ben. (laughs) My pleasure. Just trying to fill the void for a lot of your listeners after they finish The Queen. They need something else to read. Now it is time for After Balls. Uh, We just talked about Branch Ricky, Wesley Branch Ricky. I did not know, Stefan, that his nickname was the Mahatma, owing, according to Wikipedia, to his many achievements and deep Christian faith. Yes, I knew that. He was a pioneer in many ways. We know that. One lesser-known Branch Ricky fact that ties into our conversation with Ben is that in the spring of 1950, Branch Ricky had an electric electronic umpire debut at spring training at the Dodgers Complex in Florida. It was called the Cross-Eyed Electronic Umpire. It used mirrors, lenses, and photoelectric cells beneath home plate that would, after detecting a strike through three slots around the plate, emit electric impulses that illuminated what the Brooklyn Eagle called a saucy red eye in a nearby cabinet. That's from a 2016 (laughs) story by Richard Sandomir in the New York Times. I was going to say we should stick with Mahatmas, but I think we need to do saucy red eyes. I would agree. Stefan, what is your saucy red eye? Scripps National Spelling, the aficionados no doubt remember Jacob Williamson. He was the goofy, unselfconscious kid at the 2014 B who pumped his whole body in celebration when he spelled a word right. His celebrity was sealed in the finals when this happened. Kabaragoya. Kabaragoya. I know it. I know it. I totally know it. Okay. Kabaragoya. C A. B-A-R-A-G-O-Y-A. Kabaragoya. What? Kabaragoya is spelled K-A-B-A-R-A-G-O-Y-A. Jacob finished seventh and entered the Spelling Bee Highlight Reel Pantheon along with the kid who fainted at the mic in 2004 and the girl who won the 1997 Bee when she screamed her way through the word UNM. You oh Jacob is 20 now and one of the bee's most obsessive chroniclers and critics. He does it on a blog called BNN. He profiles spellers, handicaps local bees, reports on training trends to develop his numerical ranking of every participant in the National Bee. Jacob watches live streams of and reports in detail on qualifying bees across the country. 
and overseas. Ghana was everything it was cracked up to be, and then some, turning out to be the best Ghana bee in at least several years. Jacob wrote in February. In the run-up to this year's National Bee, Jacob posted close to 20,000 words on his blog. The last 1,655 of those were about the insanity that transpired last Thursday when eight spellers were crowned co-champions. Jacob titled his post, Armageddon. God is dead and we have killed him, he wrote. The bee is broken and its time is at an end. This will be remembered as the day the spellers rose up and declared, we are the dictionary. Kind of like a clockwork orange with Rishik. Shrutika and Aaron and the other spellers as the thugs running roughshod over the dystopian England of the dictionary. It was kind of apocalyptic. The great eight spelled 20 words apiece correctly in the finals. Collectively, they got their last 47 words in a row right. The final started at 8.30 on ESPN. The organizers must have started panicking at around 11 o'clock. At 11.17, one speller asked what time it was. At 11.30, the pronouncer Jacques Bailey announced an on-the-fly rules change. After three more rounds, anyone still alive would be a champ. It ended just after midnight. In the days since, bee groupies have been trying to figure out what happened and what to do. What happened is that the bee is no different from Jeopardy or baseball or Scrabble or chess. Smart people have developed analytics and technology to deconstruct the game and allow more people to master it more efficiently and effectively. The most revolutionary tool in the bee is a software study program created by some former stars called Spell Pundit. They collected more than 120,000 words from Merriam-Webster's unabridged dictionary, the official source for the B, that they identified as most likely to show up in the finals. Words are grouped in sets of 500 according to difficulty that allows for more constructed studying. This is similar to the kinds of tools that I use in Scrabble, and it makes total sense. Six of the eight winners were spell pundit users. Now the fear is that advanced analytics will lead to 10 or 12 or who knows, 50 side Borg spellers surviving the finals. Jacob wrote that the organizers, quote, obviously came woefully, ridiculously unprepared for this field, end quote. Step one, he said in his post B post, is for the B to make the finals words even harder. Pull out the ridiculous tribes, minerals, and obscure Eastern European cities, Jacob wrote. It's time to go all out or else there won't be spelling bees anymore. That's a start, but the bee faces a more existential problem. There's nothing to stop more and more kids every year from learning all the words. So what will probably happen is that the bee will add more vocabulary and other non-spelling ways of whacking the field before the finals. I say embrace the next set of Octochamps or nano champs, or dodeca champs. Just put a time or a round cap on the finals so that the thing ends by 11 o'clock and send everybody home happy and amazed. We shall prevail, Jacob wrote. This is the end of one thing and the beginning of another. There cannot, must not, and will not be a world where our children can't feel the joy of winning spelling bees. If it falls to our generation to secure a brighter reality, then... Let it be. Or just have all these kids play Scrabble. It's really more fun. Josh, what's your saucy red eye? The college baseball postseason is upon us, which means that the lesser ESPN networks will be full of pings for the next couple of weeks. 
Those pings are the result of metal bats, which are governed by rules defining how much oomph they can impart to a baseball. Bats must get something called BBCOR certification, with the BBCOR standing for Bat Ball Coefficient of Restitution, measures the so-called trampoline effect of the bat. The idea here is to ensure that metal bats perform like wood ones, don't impart too much velocity to the ball, which can be dangerous, can also lead to lots of home runs, and everyone hates home runs. If a bat does not meet these certification standards, Stefan, then it gets banned. And it's not just the NCAA that has these standards. Youth leagues in USA Baseball have them too. According to JustBats.com, the five best illegal bats of all time are the DeMarini CF Zen Marucci Cat 5 BBCOR Rip It Prototype Combat BT Youth and the Louisville Slugger 1X Fast Pitch, which all of, all of which sound awesome, to be honest. So one question that I had is, what do you do with an illegal bat? One obvious answer is to continue to use it in defiance of the law. Softball. Don't tell the lawman uh, what you can do with your bat. All's fair and pick up softball, Josh. <laughs> Another answer is to recycle your bat. And for instructions therein, I'm going to direct you to trustwaymetal.com. Uh, the title of the article is, Can You Scrap Aluminum Baseball Bats? And I found this story... Uh, to the extent that it is a story, so delightful that I'm just going to read it in its entirety. And it begins, yes, you can scrap them, and they are a great example of aluminum. Unless you coach a team, own batting cages, or work at a local school, you may not find too many aluminum bats in the garage. Most are passed down to other children in the family or donated. Thrift stores often sell bats for a few cents. If you are ever in one of these stores, you would be wise to purchase any aluminum bats that you see, because they are worth more in scrap than what these stores charge for them. You may find aluminum baseball bats at local garage sales, however. They will likely be priced higher because people attempt to recover the original cost of the bat if it is still in good shape. This is all great advice so far. It continues. Your best bet, if you want to focus your efforts on aluminum bats, is to form a partnership with an organization. If you show up unannounced, be sure that you are decently dressed. The advice just keeps getting better. Make sure that you have a business card available that is not dirty. If the person that you need to speak with about setting up a partnership is not available, briefly explain what you do and your intentions to the person that you speak with. Leave your business card with this person. Do not give up just because you cannot speak to the boss today. Rather than having the person that you speak with tell the boss, some guy left his card about scrap metal, impress them enough so they'll say, we really need to work with this guy. And that's it. That's the, that's the article. But I had never considered... The possibility of one's business card being dirty, dirty yeah, much well, less. I mean, if it's dirty, it's probably been in your wallet a long time, which is not a good sign. If you show up unannounced, be sure that you're decently dressed. If you show up announced, no need to dress decently. It's a little push and pull there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Stefan, maybe this week we can take this advice into practice, go out and try to sell some aluminum bats for for scrap and report back next week and See what happens. Maybe I can dress not decently since that is definitely available in my my repertoire and present a dirty business card. I don't know. Right now you you're dressed opposite. decently and I'm wearing a T-shirt. Yeah, but we're playing against type. Well, okay. either way, what, maybe we can switch it up week, week, week by week. Just you know, want to control some of the variables here. Um, but yeah, everybody out there, just go go try to sell limited pets. We'll, we'll report back and have a conclave next week. That is our show for today, Stefan. Our producer is Patrick Port. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hang up. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I continued our conversation with Ben Lindbergh, the co-author of the book The MVP Machine about the player development revolution in baseball. You know, when a David Eckstein would come up and be good and people would say he was gritty, that was always the punchline. But he probably was gritty. That's probably why he got to be a productive major leaguer, even though he was tiny and didn't have a ton of raw talent. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangoutplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.